Hey there, my friends. How are you? A very warm welcome to the Holy Shed. I do hope that you are keeping well wherever you are or whatever it is you're getting up to. And should you be here in the Shed for the very first time, a very special welcome to you. Oh, and by the way, if you do have a cream bun, as advertised on Facebook, uh, is there any chance you could share it with me, please? Because I ate mine earlier. Anyway, do you know what? I want to start with lighting a candle this time, a candle of thanks for this wonderful world and a silent prayer that even now we will learn to live in a better relationship with it. It's been quite a week uh, here in the UK, hasn't it, when we've been breaking records uh, on the weather front that we really don't want to be breaking. So if you have a candle handy, do light it with me to say thank you for the beautiful place that we call home and also to, uh, you know, pray that we will very soon, I mean like yesterday, uh, learn new ways to live with this planet and its wonderful creatures. And a little prayer. God of all creation, we give thanks for gifts that tumble into and saturate our lives. For the warmth of friendship, for the family of nature, for the breath in our lungs. Help us to know that we are not strangers here, but part and parcel of planet Earth and all her children, human and more. May we learn daily to cherish this great life in which we share, to nurture each moment as something precious and sacred and tread the path with mindfulness and care. Amen. I should say also that I'm lighting my candle today for a new friend, David, who is going through an extremely challenging time in his life. I've only just met him online, uh, but he's showing me and I'm sure all those around him too, the meaning of what it is to be courageous and generous in, uh, in difficult times. So, hey, here's to you, David. God bless you, mate. Okay, so uh, I want to uh, continue a bit with the line of thought that we were having last time here in the shed when you remember uh, the question that a shedster Heather raised about whether there is evidence for believing in God, especially, she said, when there's so much evidence it would seem to point against the existence of God. Now, if you've hung out in the Holy Shed long enough, you're bound to have heard me mention or quote Paul Tillich. Tillich was a 20th century existentialist philosopher and a Lutheran theologian, one of the most influential, seminal Protestant theologians of modern times, actually. His work isn't always the easy stuff, easiest stuff to get your head around. Um, but there's, there's, you know, his ideas are massively important in the world of faith, of faith and theology. If, by the way, you want to read something that's a little bit more accessible by him, um, it tends to be in his sermons. I mean, this is a little book of collected sermons, Shaking the Foundations, which I bought in a charity shop for about 20p, I think. Uh, best 20p I ever spent. 
Anyway, Tillich believed that God talk, religious discourse, including the naming of God, had basically run out of mileage, run out of currency in the modern intellectual world that he inhabited. It no longer made sense, especially after two world wars and the Holocaust. The 19th century notion of progress toward a better world um, came crashing down with the Great War in 1914. It's been said, you know, that probably the 1914 the beginning of the first world war was actually the end of the kind of of the 19th century because it brought an end to to that hope and romantic idea that the world is just on a course of progressively getting better and better until it recognized you know that this uh, the trauma that was introduced by the first world war and all that followed were was leading to a growth of a sense of meaninglessness in the world amongst people. I mean, how can you possibly find meaning or sense in 20 million deaths in World War I? 20 million deaths in World War I for what? And the slaughter of 6 million Jews and others in the Holocaust. Um, it's a problem, I guess, that has, certainly hasn't gone away. It's only increased in the 21st century, the, the phenomenon of you know, mass death and suffering in the world. And Tatilic and, and many others, then and now, traditional theism, the traditional belief in, you know, this all-powerful God out there, uh, just seemed bankrupt. Where, in God's name, was this omnipotent potentate who ruled the world when it came to the death and the suffering of so many innocents? And yet, and yet, Tillich did believe that God, the word God had a referent. In other words, that the word God pointed to some reality. But what? That's the issue. What kind of reality? And could it be spoken of in terms that still made sense when the old terminology and the old discourse of God, you know, has, has just become so tired and, uh, you know, and tossed aside by, by so many people? And this is what Tillich's work was all about. To start with, he advocated a moratorium on the word God for at least a hundred years. <laughs> I mean, it didn't happen, nor I suppose could it. But the point is well made. God is probably the most used and abused words in history. Even as long ago as the 13th century, the Christian mystic Meister Eckhart, Meister Eckhart exclaimed, I pray God to rid me of God. I pray God to rid me of God. The question is, you know, what on earth do we mean by God? For me, having, you know, doubted and deconstructed the rationalizations about God handed down to me in my earlier life a long time ago, I have to say that faith in God still remains. Um, it remains as something that's rooted in my guts, even though I absolutely want to express that faith in different terms when it comes to kind of rational explanations. To me, the word God corresponds to a presence in the deepest and truest aspects of our common human experience. To me, God corresponds to a presence that is embedded in every fibre, in every atom of creation. So I believe that the human quest for things like ultimate beauty or ultimate truth, for ultimate freedom and love, are really different ways to describe 
the quest for God. And um, so on one level, it doesn't matter whether or not we speak of God. I may not, as I pointed out last week, know that there's something called the atmosphere, or I may call it something else. I may call it Bernard Manning. But that doesn't make the atmosphere unreal or something else or stop me from living in it, from experiencing it every moment as it sustains my life and every other life on planet Earth. God talk is, you know, definitely deeply problematic for a lot of people. I myself find it problematic when I hear and see the way that people use it. And yet I'm convinced that in a stammering, stuttering way, God does point to a reality universally experienced, you know, something which is at the very core of existence. And at its best, religion is not only a way of naming that mystery at the heart of the universe, a naming, by the way, which should be, you know, under constant review and revised as time goes on, it's not just about a way of naming God. Religion is also a path of engagement. It opens up paths of engagement with that mystery. So I don't look to the Christian tradition to give me an exclusive or final way to name or comprehend God. What it offers is a community of shared speech, of shared symbols and experiences that enable me to explore and celebrate the mystery of God, often in the context of you know a passionate argument with within that community and that's good and in Jesus I find easily the most compelling embodiment of that mystery in human form I may indeed be a bad Christian but I am a passionate follower of Jesus at the end of the day you know God that word is really a makeshift term it's it's not it's not an accurate thing it's not a literal thing you know god actually originated before christianity before judaism it, it, it goes right back to, to to paganism if you will it's a word that's borrowed it's a makeshift term a stopgap a way of clearing the throat as leonard cohen marvelously put it before attempting once again to utter the unutterable paul tillich suggests that the question, does God exist, really isn't useful. He says that if when we think of the word God, we are thinking of a reality that may or may not exist, we are not thinking of God. Now that's really important. Let me repeat it again. He says that if when we think of the word God, we are thinking of a reality that may or may not exist, we are not thinking of God. Why? Because existence is far too limited a category. God doesn't exist. I mean, quote me on that if you will. God doesn't exist. God is existence. God is existence itself. God isn't a being among other beings, not even the most supreme being. No, God is the very ground of being, uh, that out of which being emerges. God is being itself. God is the bang in the Big Bang, the juice in cosmic and biological evolution. God is the source. All of which may sound a little bit kind of mystical, but not by coincidence, because I believe that this is how we experience God most directly. Not through doctrines and dogma, not at all, or even so-called worship. 
We experience most God directly in life's mysterious moments. And by mysterious, by the way, I'm not talking about spiritual hot flushes, you know, or visions of angels. For me, mystical moments are moments of innocence, of clearing the ground, moments of childlike openness or receptiveness, when we're not trying to grasp or control, um, you know, whatever it is that's going on, but when we open ourselves to it. Um, mystical moments are moments of pausing, perhaps, to watch a red kite soaring on air currents. I love to do that. Um, breathing in that small, beautiful smell just before a summer rain on, on dry earth. Feeling loved by someone. Doing almost anything that makes you completely, completely lose track of time. These are all uh, mystical moments. In a small valley in Yorkshire, where we used to rent a hideaway cottage, a very ramshackled hideaway cottage. I, one morning, stepped out to walk the dog while Pat was preparing breakfast. It was late autumn, the atmosphere was dull and the skies were leaden. And as I walked up the valley, out of absolutely nowhere, a gentle, dank mist suddenly descended. I could see almost nothing. Um, all I heard was the sound of the stream running by and the plaintive cry of two buzzards echoing across the valley overhead. Pausing to get my bearings, I felt this mysterious sense of being enveloped, you know, uh, engulfed. I don't mean just by the mist, that was there for sure, but more than that, by, by everything, by the whole thing. I just felt... Um, a sense of merging with everything, a feeling of, of union, if you like. And to my amazement, I suddenly heard myself speaking in tongues out loud, something that I hadn't done in years and years. I've never felt more alive, more real than in that moment. And, um, and incidentally, I've mentioned speaking in tongues. I'd like to come back and do a shed, actually, about that. Um, because, you know, whatever speaking in tongues meant to me when I first you know got involved with the charismatic movement years and years and years and years and years ago when you know Adam was a lad um whatever it meant to me then um has changed and evolved and for a long time it disappeared from my life and to me now I would say it is just another mystical experience a way of expressing that which is unutterable from within a way of uh what's a non-rational form of expression if you like and there are lots of others other things like that you know I experienced that in in music and art and um, you know hugging my wife and lots of other things but that's how I see speaking in tongues as and so as I sense that sort of mystical thing inside me that sense of union which I had no words for it seems quite logical and obvious that that, that was how it came out of me in in speaking in tongues Last time in the shed, I mentioned a book which is called this book here, My Bright Abyss, Meditation of a Modern Believer by Christian Wiman, who, uh, as I mentioned last week, grew up in a deeply religious background in West Texas, which he abandoned in his teams, Texas and the religious background. Um, however, his faith was rekindled in a completely different form in his late 30s through two almost synonymous experiences, that of falling in love and that of being diagnosed with a rare, and as he was told at the time, incurable cancer. 
And reflecting on all of, the, all of this, he says that when he hears people express sadness and frustration at never having felt or experienced God, he says he wants to respond, Really? Really? Have you never felt overwhelmed by and in some way inadequate to an experience in your life? I've never felt something in yourself staking a claim beyond yourself, some wordless mystery straining through words to reach you. Never? Now, clearly, his assumption is, A, that we all have those moments when we feel overpowered or overwhelmed by something, you know, something joyful, maybe something sad, um, but an authentic experience of being overwhelmed. And B, uh, the assumption is that this something, this wordless mystery, is God staking a claim on us, calling us into union. Religion is not made of these moments, he says. Religion is the means of making these moments part of our life rather than being random intrusions that we seldom contemplate, much less name. You know. So religion, he says, is a means of preserving and honouring something that ultimately transcends the elements of whatever specific faith tradition we are practising. You know. So religion is a way of framing and giving shape to um, and perhaps helping us in a provisional way to name that something that we experience that sense of being overwhelmed which he says is in fact that great mystery of God I really like this and what I take from it is that God is a universal presence in the world which we all experience in some way at some time or other and it is the purpose of faith traditions to help us recognise and name those experiences. As I say, give them shape. However, we must never forget his warning that God is always greater than whatever tradition we identify with. I mean, it just seems eminently obvious to me. Um, I, I like it. I like that very much. Christian Women also sees these moments of feeling overwhelmed as moments of childlike innocence when we are open to something beyond comprehension. Let me tell you how I see the progression of my own spiritual journey and that of many others, probably yours, I guess. It began with a wide-eyed innocence, you know. I was taught about God and Jesus and what the Bible said and what it meant and all that kind of stuff and had no reason, you know, to doubt or question what I was told. It came to me in the form of a whole narrative, if you like, a whole story which was, I was told, the only true way to God. All other stories, all other versions were false. Only ours was true. And then, little by little, as life opened up for me, the story began to unravel. Bits that didn't add up, you know, anomalies, things that just didn't make sense. And before long, it wasn't just a few anomalies here and there. The whole thing was falling apart and I didn't know how to put it back together or if I even wanted to. It was a very scary time, but it was also exciting. For a while, I thought it was the end of the road. You know, I'm going to have to find a different life. And then I realised that beyond and despite my unravelled narrative, there was still something here in my guts. And I sensed God as that which is greater, 
that which is greater than any words or versions of the story. And little by little, a new innocence began to emerge within me, a second innocence, which could never go back to where I started out. That was now done and dusted, gone forever. And yet it was an, a new innocence which enabled me to sense what Paul Tillich calls the God beyond God. The God who appears when God has disappeared in the anxiety of doubt and deconstruction and unravelling. It's not, you know, that I'm rubbishing my original naivete, the interpretations of faith that I started out with. I'm now able actually to synthesise or reintegrate some of that. But I now understand that God is indeed that which is greater than any rationalisation, any theology or interpretation, any group, uh, you know, or community who claims that they have God. God is always that which is greater. And incidentally, you know, in the Muslim uh, faith, that sort of statement that we often hear, you know, God is great. Uh, the true interpretation of that is God is greater because God is always greater. Weird as it may sound, if you ask me why I believe in God, I'm far more inclined to recount my experience in the Yorkshire Valley with the buzzards and the mist and the speaking in tongues, you know, or the joy of standing on a mountain looking over the countryside below, or, or the feeling of union I sense with a great crowd of strangers singing You'll Never Walk Alone as Anfield Football Club. I'm, I'm likely to quote any of these more than to reel off some metaphysical argument to prove God's existence, because I don't find those arguments have any real substance or residence, resonance um, beyond just a bunch of words. But these experiences in life, these mystical experiences, uh, as you could call them, that's where I look to and say that's what corresponds to something down here in my guts. A thousand mundane experiences in this beautiful world convince me that life is not just surface appearances, that there's a whole world of things beyond what we know with our senses. And this, more than any rational argument, supports my instinctive trust in God. A faith that takes mystical experiences seriously uh, leads to a very different way of thinking about God. Instead of a, a supreme being out there, we discover God in the depths of the material world, a God of dirt and passion, uh, a pervading presence in everything, including within myself, the energy that causes the universe to grow and evolve. Um, this, dear friends, is a God I don't simply believe in, but sense in my belly and experience every day, every moment, the breath of life in nature, you know, the inspiration in human creativity, the bond of love between friends, the passionate impulse for justice and goodness in the world, the yearning to know and learn and explore. This is a God I can touch and feel and sense in the depth of my humanity, the heart of my earthiness. Well, I'm getting on a roll there, but I'm going to leave it for now. Um, it's just uh, a little further in this thread of, uh, of, of how we know or can prove that God exists and, and why probably that's just not the right way to go about asking the question at all. So here is a little prayer 
that I wrote earlier, along with a beautiful little bird who, as you know, is our area bishop. <laughs> my best glimpses of you are from the corner of my eye, when least expected, when my mind is on other things and you are furthest from my thoughts. Then, right there, gleaming glory in the ordinariest of things. And my heart smiles, not just because you are there, but because you are always there amid the grandeur of my mundane life. The joke is on me. Amen. So, yes, it's the Holy Sacrament of the Holy Shed. A time to have a drink. So please take up your glass or whatever it is that you have, your mug, and uh, let's make a toast to life. Lovely people, a toast to the glorious gift of life's ordinariness. Take a moment, right now, mug or glass in hand, to name something in yourself or someone that you take for granted, but who is indeed a shaft of divinity, of divine light in your life. Take a moment to do that. A toast to, well, a toast to toast and butter, to a mug of tea, a night by the telly, a toast to giving a smile to a stranger, a toast to you, dear Shedster, to life, Lachaim. If you like what we're doing here in the shed, then hey, you can support us by buying us a coffee. Uh, the link is there on the screen for you now, and it's always, always at the top of the Holy Shed posts on the Holy Shed Facebook page. And thank you, thank you, thank you, lovely people, for supporting us by buying us coffees and doing lots of other things as well, encouraging us all along the way. And um, this week, on Thursday, I am leading another Zoomed Soul Space uh, here is a little flyer for it, courtesy of our lovely friends in Croydon, the Oasis Church Social Group in Croydon, and uh, Summer Litany, a relentless sense of hope. It's kind of, I don't know, round about an hour or just under, uh, of beautiful images, like this here one of Van Gogh's, um, film clips, music videos, me yakking on... Um, probably more than I should, but um, exploring this beautiful theme of a litany for summer. So there'll be a link up on uh, my Facebook page. Um, if you go to the Oasis Church Social Group Facebook page, you'll find it there too. I think Peter may well be listening in from that source and, be, and put a link up himself. So here is... A blessing. Friends, in happy times, may you be grateful. In challenging times, may you be brave. In tedious times, may you find joy in the moment. 
and at all times, may you be assured that you are God's dearly beloved. Amen. Okie doke, well we're nearly done and um, I'm going to play out today with a poem which I've certainly used before but I don't think we've had, actually had the poet David White reading it and making his own little commentary on it as he goes along. The poem is called Self-Portrait and uh, it begins with the line, it doesn't interest me if there is one God or many gods. It doesn't interest me if there's one God or many gods. And my, my interpretation of it is that, you know, it's sort of saying that... Um, you know, we may all have our own particular traditions, our own paths to know and comprehend and understand God. But in the end, that's not what happens because the poem unfolds saying, what I really want to know is, how does this live out in your life? How are you living your life? And uh, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful poem. So you'll hear that in just a moment. Meanwhile, I wish you a very good week. And um, yeah, may you... Uh, be kind to the world as you encounter it. Kind to friends and strangers. Kind, most of all, dear friends, to yourself. I know that's the hardest thing, but it actually is the most important thing. So go out there, guys. Enjoy your life. Stay human. Go well. I'll see you soon. Here's David White. Doesn't interest me if there is one God or many gods. Doesn't interest me if there is one God or many gods. I want to know if you belong or feel abandoned. What are you really tired of in your life right now? What are you really tired of? What do you not have energy for anymore? And sometimes we're frightened of approaching that question because we're afraid we'll come up with the answer, I'm tired of my children, I'm tired of my spouse, I'm tired of my work for which I sacrifice so much to get. But almost always, it's as much the way we're in relationship with them as it is the people themselves. It's ourselves who have made them too small for us. It doesn't interest me there is one God or many gods. I want to know if you belong or feel abandoned, if you can know despair or see it in others. I want to know if you are prepared to live in the world with its harsh need to change you, if you can look back with firm eyes saying, this is where I stand. I want to know if you know how to melt into that fierce heat of living, falling toward the center of your longing. If you are prepared to live day by day with the consequence of love and the bitter, unwanted passion of your sure defeat, I have heard, I have heard, in that fierce embrace, even the gods speak of God. Something about the journey towards this authentic self that holds the necessity of embracing some kind of defeat and loss. That a certain way of being in the world, which was innocent of some of the fiercer truths, will no longer be sufficient. In other words, you have to put yourself into an adult-adult relationship with the things of the world. You have to look it right in the eye 